Hello, I'm Zeb Neuwirth and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, bold solutions, and a renewed sense of meaning and purpose in their journey to advance patient-centered, customer-oriented, value-based healthcare. Folks, the, uh, the views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization that I uh, may be affiliated with. Our focus today on this show is patient engagement and health activation, and we are so fortunate to have a guest on our show, Dr. John Moore. John is a medical doctor and an engineer who is dedicated to radically improving the experience of healthcare, as well as the science of care delivery. Um, he is uh, very focused and, and intense, and uh, his background is really in empowering individuals to participate in their care uh, at a much deeper level than they ever imagined possible. Currently, uh, he is the founder and CEO of Twine Health, whose employee health activation platform supports workplace health providers in on-site clinics and health coaching programs and uh, really helps in terms of improving the efficiency and the effectiveness of health outcomes as well as decreasing medical costs. Uh, Dr. Moore uh, has a bachelor's in engineering as well as a medical degree from Boston University and uh, he has advanced training. He has a doctorate actually from the MIT Media Social Lab or Social Media Lab, I'm sorry, and um, really has worked uh, in that intersection of learning science, health psychology, and human computer interaction. A truly remarkable cross section uh, that's embedded in his background. Um, I did actually have the opportunity to. Uh, meet John and actually hear him speak a number of years ago when he was working on his doctorate at the MIT Social Media Lab. I remember it distinctly. Uh, we were there for a day-long uh, symposium on healthcare at the MIT Social Media Lab, and um, he and his work uh, just really stood out as being spectacular. I, I, this was about six or seven years ago, and I, I remember how inspired I was by what he was building at the time. And then when we got reintroduced about two or so years ago, I was really delighted to see what he's done with his work and where he's come with it. So, John, again, sorry for the long introduction, but it's always a pleasure to speak with you. How are you doing today? Well, thank you very much, Zen. Thanks for that very kind introduction, and, and thanks for having me on your show. Oh, it's it's my great pleasure, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to speaking with you uh, and sharing, actually, for the first time, sharing our dialogue and our conversations with others. So, so John, I'm going to dive in. Before we get into the specifics of the Twine platform, and I, I would like you to explain to folks what it is Twine is about, but before that, you know, people use the word, uh, the words patient engagement, patient empowerment, um, and um, and now you're you're actually framing it as as health activation, which I really like. But what is the problem we're trying to solve? What, what how did you see this as a problem, or how do you see this as a problem that needs to be solved? Yeah, I think the the simple summary is that health is what we make it, and it happens on a daily basis. Uh, in the world that we live in, it doesn't happen in a doctor's office or in a clinic. And uh, what we really need to do is help people to participate in that care in a way that allows them to improve their health behaviors and improve their health outcomes. And patient engagement as a term thus far in the industry has predominantly been focused on getting people to attend visits or to follow up on lab results, things like that, that it's not really a deep level of engagement or participation in their care. It's uh, what I would consider just a pure baseline of what we need to do our jobs as physicians. And uh, health activation, I think, is a, is a stage beyond that. It's, it's empowering and activating people to actually make change in their health-related behaviors and improve their outcomes. And it uh, purposely does not use the term patient engagement because health activation is really a team sport. It requires the individual and it requires the care team with whom they work and family members and friends 
really all working together as a team to get the job done. I, I actually really, I have to tell you, I, I, um, I haven't picked up in our conversations that term health activation. I, I'm sure you used it, but it's not really struck me. But uh, as I was doing some of the background reading and research for our conversation today, you know, I, I clearly you have said it. Um, I, I, I like it. And, and you, you know, I even like the fact that you're not using the word patient in there. Um, so it's, uh, it does seem like sort of it's a next gen concept and, and set of activities. What, so look, you, you were in the mainstream of, you know, medical establishments. You, you, you know, you, you did your training in medical school and, and in residency. And you, you saw something that made you, uh, go on and, and, and say, listen, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to take a different path and, and do something different and build something different. Was there an experience early on in your uh, training, um, which led you or a set of experiences that led you to say, this is not right, or this could be better. I'm going to, I mean, who, you know, who does that? Who, who leaves that and goes and does a PhD at, you know, at MIT social media lab and, 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 you know, com- creates a whole different way of interacting with patients. It's, 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 an, it's, it's unusual. And I think it's, it's courageous and, and, um, and I, I would agree with you much needed. And I don't even need to go into the statistics of why it's much needed. I, I, I'm, I'm guessing our, our the listeners to the show are well familiar with the, the statistics on, on, on patient engagement and adherence and whatnot. But what, what was it that led you to, to go down this path? What did you see that you said, this isn't good enough? Yeah, well, you might call it courageous, but my mom called it financial sabotage. But uh, <laughs> it was it was mainly a, a, a conviction that the care that we deliver could be so much better. And uh, that transition for me mainly happened when I moved from internship to residency. When I when I was an in internship, I was experiencing all the best things of of healthcare. We do an amazing job at diagnosis and treatment of conditions. Um, and medicine has advanced at an astounding rate over the recent decades. And it's, it's uh, quite spectacular what we can achieve when we can stabilize a person and, and improve their health status and, and send them out in a better state, particularly in the acute setting, right? That's what our system is fairly optimized for. But when I transitioned to my residency, uh, and was predominantly focused on chronic conditions and uh, working in more of the outpatient environment, it struck me just how poor our science of healthcare delivery is. I was doing ophthalmology, and it's uh, the first year of ophthalmology is predominantly medical management in the eye of hypertension and diabetes and glaucoma, etc. And the diagnosis and the treatment again were really spectacular, but the follow through on the on the actually deliver delivery of the care in my eyes was embarrassing. Um, I was an engineer, uh, mindset around efficiency and effectiveness, and when I look at how we deliver care today, the majority of practices don't even know how many patients have a given condition, what their status is. Um, and it's wholly, I wouldn't say wholly, but predominantly an artifact of the way we get paid and, the, and that enforces how we uh, operationalize a practice. It's fee-for-service and we uh, see a problem and we deal with it in the office and then in between we cross our fingers and hope that everything goes okay. And we convince ourselves that by... Um, Going into narrative with our, with our patients, we're able to teach them and help them build skills. But all of the evidence points to the fact that when they leave the office, they retain a, uh, somewhere around five to 10% of, of what we say, um, follow through with a very meager percentage of those things. And it's not because they're not capable of understanding or processing the information. It's purely because it's a broken model that doesn't understand the principles of health psychology and learning science. Um, and it's not because we as physicians or as, as care team members are, are um, bad people or not uh, focused on the, the right direction. In fact, you know, 
we're a very altruistic group of folks that wants to make a difference, but we're just uh, shackled by a system that that hasn't allowed us to really innovate in how we deliver that care. Mm-hmm. Was it, you know, and I may be reaching here, but was there um, an example of a of a patient or just observing that you know? that you can recall that led you to that, or it was just, just the general day in and day out you were, you were seeing from your physician engineer mindset, uh, that this, this wasn't the right way to take care of patients in, in a, in the ambulatory, you know, sort of chronic care setting. Yeah, there were, there were a lot of patient examples, but I can give you uh, a one that was particularly impactful for me. One day I was on call. Uh, I saw a patient who, uh, who had been seen by a number of other doctors before, and uh, they had been seen for a more acute issue. But during my exam, I uh, realized that this person had a quite progressive case of glaucoma and uh, without treatment was clearly going to lose their vision over time. And I was quite excited about the fact that I had picked this up early enough to really make a difference and save this person's vision. They had no real symptoms at the time, but it was clear that it was quite a progressive case and it was, it was going to uh, progress pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And so I spent a lot of time um, coming up with a plan with this patient, doing my best to do shared decision-making and co-production because, uh, you know, along the path through medical school, I had learned about this concept and really believed in it. Um, came up with a plan with the, with the patient, uh, sent them out the door with a summary of all that in, in plain English, not in doctor speak. Um, but once they left the office, you know, I didn't really have another means to communicate with them. The system that I was in was not a proponent of me spending time outside of, of the visits. Um, you know, they're, they're, they were a proponent of me getting through more volume of visits, frankly. Um, and so the next time I saw that patient, they said, oh, doc, how you doing? I really enjoyed interacting with you last time. I said, how's it going with the drops? Or, oh, you know, doc, I'm not taking those drops. Mm-hmm. My eyes feel fine. My vision seems fine. And those drops are, drops are a real pain in the butt. Um, and that really struck me. And I had a lot of experiences like this, but to me, this was the biggest one because... This person was clearly going to go blind, mm-hmm. and yet the um, the result was the same. That adherence was very poor, even though I had really done my best possible effort to put this together. and And I started to dig in and see, well, why is this happening? Is this because I'm doing it wrong? Is this because this individual has a poor health literacy or numeracy, which which at the time, a lot of the literature really blamed it on that. Mm-hmm. And I came to the realization pretty quickly that it, it had to do with the fact that to really follow through on this, this person needed help in between, right? That the person really hadn't retained the idea that this was going to make them go blind over time. They didn't really comprehend uh, the drops and, and what the schedule was and how that was going to affect things. Not because they weren't capable, but because the delivery mechanism was fundamentally flawed. A 20-minute visit packed full of information with a scary diagnosis. Um, psychologically, that's just very difficult. And so, so you, you left the traditional route and you, you went to MIT and to the social media lab. And what I find really um, extraordinary is that you didn't just study the technology and the application of technology. You actually got a PhD in, was it behavior change and motivation? Uh, what, what did you study and, and what, you know, could you, if you could sum up and, you know, what were the main lessons that you learned about that in terms of its application to healthcare? Yeah. So when I decided to leave my residency, I said, well, what contribution can I have to this field to help? change this to help make a difference. And in my eyes, pretty quickly, um, it was clear that understanding the psychology of behavior change, 
understanding how people learn and process information and understanding how technology could be applied to that were the keys. Um, this was pre-iPhone. Uh, this was, you know, cloud computing was around, but it was relatively new. It wasn't mainstream use. Um, so the concepts that I had about people managing their health and getting real-time support through their cell phone at that time were not really well-received. Uh, and frankly, I had people think that I was just out of my mind. Uh, <laughs> Uh, because they just, they, they thought, well, people will never be able to use devices like that and communicate with us. Uh, the folks that are really struggling with their health just don't have the competency to do that. And to me, that was quite off-putting and, and drove me even further to say, I really want to understand the science behind all of this and how human-computer interaction meshes with learning science and health psychology. And that's how the the thesis, the PhD thesis formed is starting with that idea and then building upon it over time with, with experiments and with, with building uh, uh, software systems that would allow for experimentation at the intersection of those fields. And, and for, you know, for, uh, and you and I have talked about this, but this issue, if folks are wondering who are listening in, the importance of this issue of behavior and behavior change and, all that uh, Dr. Moore studied. I, I mean, the one you know uh, fact that comes back to, to my mind every time you know we engage in this sort of conversation about patient engagement or health activation is that 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 somewhere around forty percent of the morbidity and mortality uh, associated with healthcare problems, over forty percent of it is influenced by what people do, their behavior. Another 20 or 30% has to do with social determinants of health, that is their community and their circumstances. So, so it's really about 70% of the outcomes of healthcare are, are due to this, this issue of behavior and relationships. And, it, and, and, and the clinical care that we, we are focused on really contributes. And again, this has been written up. It's in, been in, in the New England Journal and, and other journals. Uh, are, you know, the clinical care is a, has about a 10% impact overall. So what you were dealing with and studying, which maybe at the time, uh, as you were saying, most people didn't understand what you were doing either on the technology side or I, I would guess on the behavior side, you know, even though people didn't understand that, the, the you were really dealing with the vast majority of the leverage that we have in terms of actually improving, you know, patients' health and outcomes. So, you know, I again, I I, I, I applaud you for that kind of foresight and and uh, and the conviction and commitment you had at a time when, you know, like you said, people thought you were crazy at the time. I don't think people think you're crazy now, at least not people who understand this this area. I've heard you, John, I've heard you talk about uh, this phrase uh, where currently healthcare is, and, and let me just say one thing too, which I've heard you say, and just for the listeners, you know, I, I could imagine physicians who are listening to this might get a little defensive about it. And, and you know, I've, I've had enough conversations with you, John, to know that you're you are a uh, you know clearly a physician and and an advocate for physicians and you also the work you're doing at least as it strikes me and what I've heard from you um, the outcome will actually be the elevation of the uh, physician and and the their effectiveness and I actually uh, and we will we can get into this in a few minutes but I actually think that what you're doing could really uh, help with a lot of the physician burnout we're seeing, particularly in primary care. Um, so I, I just wanted to add that at this point, uh, just, just so folks understand that. But let's just get back to the patient for a second. You've talked about this idea that we're paternalistic, um, you know, in terms of the, the communication, uh, episodic and, and reactive. And I think it would be hard to argue with that. Um, and, and what you're moving towards is more of a co-created, proactive and, and continuous care. So could you maybe get into explaining to us what the Twine platform is and, and how it sort of creates the shift to, to more continuous, proactive, uh, co-created care? Yeah, yeah. maybe I'll, I'll reiterate a, a little bit of a point in there. He said, in some ways in medicine, we're the victims of our own success, right? We've, we've done such an amazing job with acute care over the years that that, that 
model has been so bolstered that when chronic disease care became the the most prominent cost and and uh, throughput driver in healthcare, it it has become hard to adjust our model. And as as you said, I'm absolutely a huge advocate for physicians and nurses and nurse practitioners and physician's assistants, all the clinicians, I want to make the experience of providing healthcare amazing again. And I just don't think it is right now. I think most of my colleagues, including myself, uh, we're just not getting the gratification out of the work that we should because the way we're delivering care is broken. And we're not, we inherently feel that. And that leads to these couple of adjectives that you use, that it's predominantly reactive and episodic, right? We wait until the person hits our door, and then we deal with the issue. And we do it in these small bits of time that are very widely spaced that inherently don't intersect with the real time of need for that person. It's, it's when the issue is has actually escalated um, to the point that they're going to deal with it. So uh, I don't think anyone would argue with those terms today um, that it's inherently in there. We, we as physicians uh, and other healthcare providers uh, may have an adverse reaction to hearing about it at first because we're trying our best. Right? We're putting everything we've got into helping people out there and it's it's hard to live in that reality. So, like you said, a lot of people react negatively at first to some of these concepts. But when they when they hear what what's possible and how they could be elevated and practicing at the top of their license and really being part of a team, uh, I think they receive it a lot better. And what we're simply trying to do with health activation is switch the model from reactive and episodic to continuous and proactive. We're trying to deliver care more in time with a person's need. There has been a lot of rhetoric over the past decade about how doctor's office visits are getting too short. Mm -hmm. And I'll say a very controversial thing. They're not short enough. Hmm. And it, it ha- you have to think about that for a little bit. If they were the same frequency and shorter, it would be a terrible experience for all of us. It'd be a ex- terrible experience for the individual seeking care, and it would be a terrible experience for the clinicians. But what if the interactions that we had were even shorter, but they were delivered at a much higher frequency and time, mm-hmm. spread out with the needs of the patients? Now, is it going to be the physicians that have those very frequent interactions that are shorter? Not as often. It's going to be extenders of the care team, patient navigators, health coaches, diabetes educators, nutritionists um, that have these very small micro interactions with people spread around. But that does mean inherently that physicians in parallel with those are going to have more micro interactions as well because it's going to drive changes in the person's medications, changes in the regimen. And it's going to be bookended by longer than typical interactions where we really have the time to develop rapport, dive in deep, build a great plan. But because we're going to save so much time from the reactive and and ritualistic visits that we might have every three months for the rest of the patient's life for their hypertension, uh, instead, we're going to deliver the care right when they need it and eliminate many of those visits so that we can practice in a very different way in time with the needs of the patients in a much more proactive way. I, I, I really, you know, I love what you're saying. It's, it, it sounds really exciting. And this concept, actually, I, I, I like that word, micro visits. So here we are. What you're saying is we're going to go from you know, these episodic reactive visits, um, were often paternalistic and delivered by, you know, by physicians often, uh, the vast majority still. And, um, and they're d- separate from life, uh, the life that the patient's leading. So we're going to move away from those episodic, you know, visits to micro visits, much shorter encounters that are largely delivered by, 
coaches or other uh, physician extenders and assistants, but they're embedded in the real time of patients' life as they're living it when they come up against problems and issues and questions. So the the treatment is you know really delivered to the point of care where it's really needed the point of life and the, so much more effective the patient's ready to receive it because they've they, they've asked for it in a sense that's a that's a profound conceptual shift or reframe of healthcare delivery how is that those clearly the patients they're not going to come into the office for the micro visit how is the micro visit delivered and by whom yeah, they're mainly delivered asynchronously through data, through pictures, through text, uh, all in a way that delivers information of value for making timely decisions. Um, very rarely is it a synchronous interaction, either face-to-face or video or phone call. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it's worth just highlighting a, a specific example, we did a, a randomized controlled trial at the Massachusetts General Hospital for employees that had uncontrolled blood pressure, people above 140 over 90. And the way the care model worked is a nurse health coach in the experimental arm would um, see the individual in a face-to-face interaction and spend about 45 minutes and really co-create a plan of care. Um, the, the doctor had already seen the patient at some point in the past, and there wasn't really a need for much physician uh, interaction because there was already a diagnosis of essential hypertension. So the, uh, well, you weren't trying to rule out secondary causes. But the nurse coach really co-created a plan of care. They used the technology to create an artifact of that. We call it an action plan. Um, similar to what you might think of as a care plan that's done in the care management space, except an action plan is way more specific. It gets into what is the, the frequency of which, with which the individual is either tracking things like their blood pressure or taking their medication or uh, making a diet change. What days of the week, what time of the day, uh, what is the goal of the measurement? And it breaks it into small pieces usually two week to a month increments at a time because that's the way people learn and operationalize behavior change. And it syncs immediately to the person's device so that the coach and the patient co-created this plan together. It's synced to a device in the in this study. It was a tablet computer that was provided to them. And then when they went home, immediately the, the application was supporting the patient on a daily basis uh, and the coach was typically communicating once a day or once every other day, uh, immediately following the visit, and then gradually spaced out that communication over time and delivered it right in time with the data that was flowing in and with the communications from the patient. And in the course of three months, 100% of the patients reached target blood pressure with an average blood pressure drop of 26 points. And with a profound improvement in their satisfaction with their care. And you know what patients said? This is the, the thing that really blew us all away. Was they said, thank you for spending so much time with me. Hmm. And then the, the nurse in the study said, wait, I used to spend a half an hour to an hour office visit with you with regular intervals. In this, I spent that one visit with you up front. And I sent you four text messages. No, 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 no. You spent a lot of time with me. You were there right when I needed you. Hmm. So what, what came out of that was this idea that people's perception of time spent is more affected by the timeliness of the interactions than by the actual raw amount of time spent. And their perception of the experience and how much the person cared for them was so heavily affected by timeliness that that has been a driver of all of the work that we've done since then. And obviously a 26-point drop in blood pressure and getting 100% of people to go in three months is, is pretty unparalleled. But that was all possible, not because of our software, but because we created an environment 
where that nurse coach and that individual could work together as a team. And that individual at the end of it said, finally, somebody believed that I was an important player in my health and made me accountable. And they used those words over and over again. The psychological framing of the whole experience was changed. And you, you, you know, in this trial, and you've repeated this, I know, many times in the real world uh, with providers and employers and seen, uh, you know, really uh, excellent outcomes in terms of blood pressure control. Could you just, you know, re- repeat that for me? And what that control, how does it compare to standard of care for blood pressure control? So standard of care today in physician practices uh, uh, without the use of a coach or other extender, just with the care of the physician, is a six-point drop in blood pressure over the course of a calendar year. Uh, and somewhere around, hmm, I'm blanking a little bit, but I think it's, it's somewhere around 20% of people who will gain blood pressure control in the course of a year. So... Um, you're comparing six points in a year to 26 points in three months, mm-hmm. and you're com- comparing about 20% of people reaching blood pressure control to 100%. So pretty dramatic differences. So, so the outcomes are far superior. The, uh, the patient experience uh, sounds like it's far superior in, in terms of uh, feeling like you spent more time, as you were saying, and feels feeling like there was much more attention spent to, the, you know, on the patient, uh, as well as they're feeling accountable and and engaged and active in their care as 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 collaborators, um, and you know, uh, and in terms of the cost, clearly they're not coming into the office, and so uh, the cost has got to be dramatically lower. I mean, is that is that the case? Yeah, so uh, we've subsequently showed that you eliminate about two-thirds of synchronous office visits. So from a, um, a view of total cost of care, at the primary care level, you're, you're decreasing utilization there. The sum time spent by the nurse coach is, um, especially in subsequent analysis that we've done, uh, where, you know, Back then, the software was much more primitive. Now it's a lot more evolved. We can um, dramatically improve the efficiency of the care delivery. So you decrease cost. And then, obviously, a 26-point drop in blood pressure equates to a certain percentage drop in uh, in stroke, heart attack risk, kidney disease over time, and, and cost savings ensue because of that as well. Yeah. No, there's, there's no question. Obviously, Treating blood pressure that effectively is going to reduce heart attack, strokes, um, and, and and kidney disease. Uh, you know, it, it's it's interesting as I'm hearing you describe it in, in this way. It, it it's the analogy that comes to mind is almost like targeted chemotherapy, where it used to be chemotherapy was just dispensed throughout the body and it just attacked all cells. And you know, the more sophisticated and elegant chemotherapeutic agents now are uh, tagging the cancer cells and, and affecting them uh, much more and really getting to where the issue is. And it seems like you've, you've created a much more targeted, effective approach by these asynchronous uh, virtual micro visits, as you're saying, that are occurring you know, during the patient's life. What, now, what does it take? What physically, uh, do I need a cell phone or a, a laptop? And is, is there... Uh, this is recorded in an app, or what's the template, or what, what is it simple? Can most people use it? How does that work? Yeah, so jumping from the research back then to the practicality of Twine Health and what we do today, um, Twine runs as an app on a cell phone or a tablet or on your computer. Uh, eventually, you know, we'll, we'll be on a lot more devices than that as well. We're already pulling data from you know, Apple Watches and, and wearables and other devices as well. Uh, and we specifically designed for ease of use. Our average user is, is in their upper 50s. Um, in, in my eyes, their, their capability of that demographic is no different than, on average, than the, any other demographic. Um, 
those folks are very capable of, of using the technology. But every user, no matter what age, no matter what background, no matter what uh, technological savviness, it, health is a different beast. If you don't make it delightful and easy, it doesn't matter how tech savvy you are. It's never going to be as fun as angry playing Angry Birds or watching something on Netflix. Mm. So from a design perspective, what you do, regardless of the demographic, has to be incredibly easy, flows into your daily life, and adds delight. Otherwise, you're lost in healthcare. We, ju- we just have a barrier that's a lot bigger because it's not entertainment. It's not fun. Um, and you can try to turn it into a game, but I can bet you, again, it's not going to be as fun as Super Mario, right? If you try to go that route and make it a game, you're not going to win. Now, you have to add delight, but delight in healthcare is a bit different. It needs to be more, in my eyes and in our research, about the personal connections, about feeling like you've tackled a problem that was either scary or overwhelming or, or, or somehow intractable to you, that you feel um, support from people that matter to you and you feel delight in the fact that you've shown them that you can make a difference. That's where we see the real fun or the real game of it is. It's not by making it into badges and rewards and things like that. And um, I'm going to, I'm just going to, well, let me ask you this question. We've been talking about uh, these extenders you mentioned. So it, it seems to me that another shift that you've made is to have the coach, or I'm not sure what, what term you would call it, but the frontline person on your Twine platform is is not the physician who's in in that kind of frequent micro-visit contact, but it's a, it's a coach of some sort. What say a little bit about that, and what's you know what's the importance of that? The you know and and what and, and what kind of a role does that coach play? How critical is that? Yeah, it was it was pretty quick when I started doing this research work that it was apparent that there needs to be new emerging roles of people to have the the specific skills and the time and to be cost effective to fill all these gaps in time between visits. Um, if you just do the math on it, we can't train enough doctors and nurses to do it, um, given the, the chronic disease burden of this country and of the world. And given the cost structure, if you want, if you do the multiplication of, well, what could the cost of the individual be, the hours of time, how much would it take? Even if we did a, you know, a two or three X improvement in their scalability with the software, you still need to think about a lower cost individual that's more targeted to this. And at the same time that I started doing the research, others were doing some great work with health coaches. Uh, Rushuka Fernandepule is a, is a friend and advisor of mine who was starting Iora Health at the same time, and it was really founded in this health coaching principles. Um, the colleagues that I worked with at MGH, they were believing in in uh, health coaching and, and had already had a health coach in their practice at the time. So pretty quickly, I dove into that field and, and realized that their outcomes already were dramatically better than those that were purely physician-led, uh, physician-driven, I shouldn't say, uh, because the coaching models are still physician-led. Um, and it was just a question of how could we make that even more efficient, scalable, um, and effective. Uh, and I think uh, since then, it's grown even more, the, the number of different types of health coaches, whether they're navigators or health coaches or nutritionists or, or other folks playing that role, there's new evidence that suggests that it's the fastest growing profession in healthcare is to be an extender of that sort. Mm-hmm. You know, we've talked about the effectiveness, improved effectiveness and improved experience uh, and improved engagement and, and, and improved outcomes. I think the one factor here that's really important to an implication of, of what you're saying in this reframe of healthcare delivery with the coaches and extenders is that is that of access. Uh, if you start to add coaches to the team, and if they're doing a lot of this work, this allows the physician 
to step back and step up in a way and to really, again, be very, very targeted uh, and leveraged in, in a really highly effective way. And also from an intellectual and skill and experience perspective to do the higher order work that only they can do. So perhaps instead of the 1,500 to 2,000 patient panels or, or capacity that a, that a physician has, uh, that could go up two or three times or maybe more than that if you start to add coaches to this and, and again, take the care out of the office and into people's lives and do it asynchronously. What, what, what's your thought about that? How, how do you think this might change the, the role of the physician? Yeah, and I I, and access. I think the other piece that has to be discussed with access is gratification at work and happiness. Um, because uh, when I tell people that I think that the average primary care physician could be managing uh, 5,000 to 10,000 patients simultaneously, they usually want to punch me in the face, mm -hmm. right? right. And rightfully so, because right, the experience right now with a with 1,500, 2,000, 2,500, it's no fun, mm -hmm. right? It's not gratifying. You're just cranking through the day. And when I tell them this idea that it could be a lot more, that it's scary. Mm -hmm. um, but if instead of fighting that fight alone, you have a nurse and four health coaches and a social worker slash behavioral health team member, and you're you're working in unison as a team, all respecting each other and leveraging each other's skills, it could be incredibly delightful and gratifying. And um, even the work now of being a health coach or an extender without uh, tools like we've studied over the years, it's it's a bit of a grind because you, you meet with people and you talk through and do motivational interviewing and help them build a plan. But you don't know if it really works. You're not really connected with the individual out in the real world. And you see them back in the office. And it's it's very much similar to, to, to the problems that I highlighted with doctoring today. It's still episodic and reactive. Mm -hmm. um, but we can transform all of these aspects of, the, of care, from the coaching to the nursing to the doctoring, to all be more continuous. And it's amazingly gratifying because now... Um, you get uh, individuals who are messaging you and saying, I crushed this problem and look at how awesome my results are. And I'm so thankful for all the work that you've given to me. And by the way, that person doesn't need to come in for visits every three to six months for the rest of their life because they're actually sometimes reversing the disease, not just controlling it. We, in our studies, we often have people minimizing or getting off of their medications because they're simultaneously improving adherence and diet and exercise. Those things are hard to do, but when you break them into tiny bits and you get social support, they're achievable. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a combination of all those things. If we really improve the experience for all the parties and it's more gratifying and, and there's, there's greater um, camaraderie in this, then not only can we improve the access and and expand the panel size, but everybody can feel like the, every minute of their time is meaningful. And for me, when I was when I was uh, practicing as as a physician in the old way, I, I felt like I was a data entry technician, just like pounding away information into the EMR, and that that that's no fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. You, um, last time we spoke, you shared a story, um, and again, I think it illustrates that this platform and this approach is very convenient and easy to use for uh, even older people who are not tech savvy. It was, I, it, if I recall, it was an older Italian woman um, whose husband was homebound, and I. I believe she had high blood pressure. Um, do you recall that that patient? So she was a diabetic with a hemoglobin A1C. I think it was 10 point, 10 point something, we'll call it, um, and had been under care for her diabetes for the past 20 years. So nothing new. 
uh, diet and exercise, wasn't really able to succeed with that. Um, to, you know, moved on to oral hypoglycemics and was still under poor control. And when, uh, when I met her, uh, she was starting basal insulin. It was part of a, of a trial that we did and published uh, with the Jocelyn Diabetes Center uh, for basal insulin start and titration. And um, she was in her mid to late 70s, I think, from what I remember. And she told me, she said, John, you're a nice guy. I'll try out this tablet computer thing that you have. Right? This was, um, I think the iPad had been released by this time, but not for long. We were doing it on Android tablets because they were out before uh, the iPad was. Um, so we had a little bit of head start in developing the software there. And she said, well, I'll give this thing a try, but don't, don't count on it. I've never used a computer before. Mm. Um, and when she finished the study, she finished it two months, uh, two months plus a little bit. She finished a little earlier. And she had dropped her hemoglobin A1C, I think by... 2.8 or, or three points or so in two months. And uh, she said, I don't want to give this thing back. Mm. Not because I care about the stupid tablet, because I care about you guys, right? The people on the other end, because my husband at home with dementia, I would have had to leave him at home or I would have missed office visits because something wasn't going right that day. But you guys teleported. I don't think she used the word teleported, but... Uh, I'm a sci-fi kind of guy, uh, teleported <laughs> into my life out where I needed you. And it was just magically easier. And things that I thought were hard that I couldn't achieve that you guys have been telling me to do for a long time, like change my diet or exercise more. She said, well, frankly, I didn't exercise that much more. But I changed my diet. I switched to whole, whole grain pasta. We eat a ton of pasta. And I started taking my medication reliably, and I did all these things. Um, and it was um, it was pretty emotional for all of us uh, and pretty compelling in terms of what we achieved. And, and this was at a time when everyone was telling us that, that um, the only people that would be able to use this was 20- and 30-year-old technophiles because that's the only person who can learn to use a smartphone or a tablet. Um, and this, we had these kind of stories um, very consistently throughout our research. It's not about adopting the technology. It's about connecting people. And if you can do that, then you will be very surprised about who really latches onto this. And in fact, 20- and 30-year-olds are some of the the hardest people to get involved in it because they don't have a real compelling need mm-hmm. or a real compelling bond that they're forming with people on the other side because the need isn't as strong in general, right? Everybody has different issues. And unfortunately where diabetes epidemic is, is driving down into lower and lower ages. But, um, in general, the, the biggest uptake that we have is in the 15, 60 year old age range where they're really disenfranchised with the healthcare system and how it's serving them. Yeah, that's a that's a great story, and I, I remember now it's coming back to me. The she, one of the comments you said she shared with you and the team was um, that she felt for the first time like she was respected as a as an active, accountable, capable person who could do these things. Um, and uh, so it was that was the that was the part of the story that I most vividly remember when you shared it with me the first time. Um, so so every time I speak with you, every time I speak with some of your folks at Twine, uh, every time I read about it, the question that comes to mind is, well, look, just better care overall, more cost effective, better outcomes, better for the patient in terms of their experience and, and, and feeling good about themselves, uh, better for the healthcare team, including the, the, the doctor and the, and, and the coach, so my question is, and it comes to mind every single time, why isn't this being adopted uh, at a greater rate? And, and I don't know where you are now with it. I, I, I know you've done some pivoting in terms of who you've been targeting and where, where, 
where it's being deployed more. And maybe you want to say a word about that. But, you know, it just it it just astounds me that um, this isn't being used uh, more than it is now. What, what, what's what's what do you what do you make of that? Yeah, the funny thing is that was all the easy part. Right. Um, improving the quality of care. To me, looking back, um, it was all a lot of common sense. Right. How do people learn and, and, and what's the psychology of having a chronic disease and, and feeling disempowered? And how can we transform that um, by rethinking how we deliver the care and rethinking how we use technology to facilitate those interactions. Um, in retrospect, that was really the easy part. The hard part is who cares? Uh, and that's been the hard part for me in the past four years hmm. is I've been, uh, frankly beaten down quite a bit that, um, a lot of people told me that they, from a, from a business perspective, not from a personal or altruistic perspective, but from a business perspective, they said, well, John, frankly, our, our business is not aligned around this, right? We, we would lose money if, um, if we invested in this and, and people got this much healthier. And that has been the really, the really hard part from there. Um, yeah, we, we've worked with a lot of organizations where we proved some pretty awesome outcomes and, and, uh, they, as much as they wanted to figure out ways to get this out there, the cost of a health coach for $40,000 in order to save on the order of millions of dollars in, in costs, it, it wasn't in the, in the cars given the business model. And, and the, so, so it's, it, it's the the, the payment uh, payment for care is not aligned with the care itself in this case with the care you're delivering through the twine platform or, or the care that would be delivered uh, primary care on this platform why is that is you know so you're saying in a fee for service model the the they're not gonna the, you're not going to get that fee for service because you're investing a, a bit into the platform into the health coach but they're losing money because yeah so the the issue has never been the cost of the software software is cheap mm-hmm. um very easy to scale and it's relatively cheap the issue has always been the cost of thinking about the care team if a if a health coach costs somewhere between 40 and 60 thousand dollars all in um and most of the work is done asynchronously and that's not reimbursed and you eliminate about two-thirds of the synchronous visits with the physician, which chews into their RVUs and chews into their comp- compensation, and that you eliminate a certain number of uh, ER visits and hospitalizations, and the value-based care contract is not yet operationalized in a way that uh, has a, a reward that is commensurate with the loss in that revenue. Um what we found is 100% of that time that equation tipped such that the reward mm-hmm. with the contracts in place was nowhere near the loss in revenue um, from providing that more streamlined care. Mm-hmm. And so the, they, couldn't, they couldn't get justification for, um, for growing beyond one health coach even though the the evidence was already there that the outcomes from that coach was incredibly uh, cost-effective from an overall perspective, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But it's just not the way fee-for-service care works. Now, value-based care contracts are moving in the right direction, but there's a difference between what the value-based care contract stipulates and how it's operationalized. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a dramatic difference there. And most of them are operationalized in a way that doesn't get the true benefit of the risk profile of that contract, particularly at the primary care level. Mainly at the primary care level, it's still they're still operating on RVUs and they're trying to milk the value-based contracts in other areas. Uh, and, you know, there's some meager performance awards that trickle down to primary care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is, uh, that's, I mean, it's just when you, 
when you look at it like that, it's just, and, and the way you're describing it, it's, it's really disheartening. Um, when we know we could be delivering better care and yet, um, uh, the payment and compensation models that we are using are just not aligned with better care. Um, I don't know how to say it any other way than that. Um, that's, you know, the, I, the easy way to look at it is when we were working in mainstream healthcare and achieving these kind of results, the most any of the organizations that we worked with, the most that they ever scaled the use of twine to was a couple of hundred patients. Mm-hmm. Since we've shifted to the uh, workplace or workforce health market, mm-hmm. which is predominantly capitated and very outcomes driven, uh, we now have customers that are targeting populations in the tens and hundreds of thousands. So there, there's just a very practical business reflection there that says, there's a dramatic difference in the way they get paid and the way they think about innovation and care delivery when you're talking about only being able to operationalize it for a couple of hundred to tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands. Um, there's just greater urgency when, I would say urgency and agility, when the payment model is aligned with the best interests of all the people. So you've really shifted your focus from uh, providers, from physicians and, and physician groups and, and integrated delivery networks to employers. Um, and, and because employers are, uh, they're paying the bills and they're measuring the outcomes, uh, this, this uh, value-based care is aligning with that. Um, and yeah, I'm, we've shifted... Mm-hmm. All of our business to workplace health providers, mm-hmm. the folks that build on-site clinics or health coaching programs or other programs for employers. So we're still working with doctors and nurses and health coaches and uh, different kinds of care teams, but their relationship is not directly with the insurer anymore. Their relationship is now directly with the employer. So there's no longer this triangle employer, uh, insurer, provider it's just direct and it and it and it aligns the incentives that's that's great we're gonna I, we're getting close to to the hour here and uh i promised you i would uh, try to wrap it up uh what um what message is there kind of a take-home nugget a, a message uh a to-do maybe uh, uh for the listeners here what what, what would you like to to leave the folks with, yeah, I, you know, we, you know, the past ten minutes has has been kind of more of a of a down note, right? Uh, mm-hmm. That that struggle uh, with with coming to terms that the fact that the system that I was working with and really hoping to to help fix and and make a contribution there wasn't quite ready for it. Uh, like to part with a very optimistic view that. The, the workplace health arena, I think, is just a, a harbinger of what's to come. They, they are a bit more uh, agile and, and liberated because um, they have some of these aligned incentives. But if you look at healthcare systems across the country, they are employers themselves. Mm-hmm. And so there is a tremendous opportunity with their own employee lives to figure out how to do this really high efficiency, high effective, delightful care because they're fully risked for that population already. And the most progressive of health systems out there not only are starting to do this with their own employees, but they're starting to do it with employers in the area. And they're learning the code, right? They're learning Mm. how to figure this out so that when their value-based contracts become more risk-based and they don't have a foot in each canoe, Right, right now they're, they're split right down the middle. They, they, people want them to, to keep the volume, but also get the results. It's kind of an impossible, com- uh, mathematical equation to solve. It's coming that they won't have to meet both of, both of those masters. And if they can start doing that with their own employee lives and with employers in the area, they crack the code and then they're ready for it once name, once, uh, 
value-based contracts get even further. So I'm very optimistic that we're approaching a tipping point where fee-for-service is is no longer holding us back from doing the right thing that is going to make everybody happier and healthier, both the individuals and the care team members. So, um, yeah, I want to end on that positive note that, that, uh, that, that there's a bright side for sure. Yeah. So I think you're right. And, and thank you for that. And, and I, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that, uh, that employers, uh, and providers, uh, who are working with employers are, are realizing the benefits of your platform and using it to the extent that they are. It's actually, uh, that is actually really encouraging. So thank you for, I feel better hearing that. Um, I feel better. For, <laughs> no, I do. And I feel better for the patients, um, uh, who, who are benefiting and, and employees who are benefiting from, from, uh, the application of your platform. Uh, and, and it is a message for even for the providers out there who, uh, who are interested in employee health or in fact, or have employees themselves. This is something that they can adopt internally. So John, uh, again, just want to thank you, uh, again, and I want to, uh, Thank our guests for uh, being a part of creating a new healthcare. Um, you know, uh, you all out there are the folks who are doing the hard work each and every day, taking care of patients or supporting the people who are directly taking care of patients. So, um, this this show is all about you and for you, and obviously for the uh, greater mission we serve in terms of really improving the health. Uh, care and health outcomes of our uh, patients and our communities. So uh, this is Zeb Newirth. You've been listening to Creating New Healthcare, wishing you all good health and uh, good living. Until next time.